It's always good to worship together. The Lord's Day, look forward to it. It's a joy to be with you, just to fellowship. It's a joy to proclaim the Word. It's a joy to study the Bible together and to see how it's impacted our church as a whole over the years and each of our lives. Uh, We all have a story of how a sermon or a sermon series or a Bible study or just a time of talking with another believer, how that's impacted our life for the better, for God's glory. And it really is all about the Word. The five and a half years that God has grown this church, it's all done through the Word. The Word is behind everything that goes on here. Of course, God ultimately is the one behind that. He gives us His communication, His revelation through His Word. And this morning, we want to turn to the part of His Word called the book of Ecclesiastes, Ecclesiastes chapter 11. This series on Ecclesiastes is drawing close to an end. Looks like we have just a a few more sermons on it. And it has been a great journey so far. It's been a great lesson in wisdom. We need more wisdom. Christians today don't have enough wisdom and don't practice what little wisdom they do have like they should. We need to be wiser so we can be more godly, so we can be a sanctified believer in the Lord Jesus Christ. Ecclesiastes 11. Let me just read the text to you. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Divide your portion to seven or even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. If the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. Sow your seed in the morning and do not be idle in the evening, for you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, or whether both of them alike will be good. The light is pleasant, and it is good for the eyes to see the sun. Indeed, if a man should live many years, let him rejoice in them all, and let him remember the days of darkness." For they will be many. Everything that is to come will be Havel. Hebrew word Havel. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood, and let your heart be pleasant during the days of young manhood. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. So remove grief and anger from your heart and put away pain from your body, because childhood and the prime of life are Havel. Amen. So Ecclesiastes 11 is about wisdom for all of life. Wisdom for all of life. We, we need wisdom. That's what the book as a whole is about. And he's been telling us, Solomon has, King Solomon, that life is short. Life is a mist. Life is a vapor. That's how he opens the book. Havel of Havels or Havel Havelim in Hebrew. It means mist, vapor, brief, transient, ephemeral. We're here one second, we're gone the next. That's life. And so the question becomes, and this is how he starts the book in chapter 1, verse 3, the question becomes, how do we live? How do we live to make a difference? If life is so short, then what's the real advantage to living, to working, to having a family, to enjoying the things that God gives us? What's the advantage? What's the purpose? What's the point if life is a vapor? And so he's given us many answers. Some of the answers that Solomon gave us aren't answers we should follow, 
but answers that the world gives. Chasing pleasure, chasing money, chasing fame, fortune, real estate, all these different things that the world loves to go after. And he says he tried all those things. They didn't work. They're not the answer. And so since those first few chapters, he's just been exploring different things that he's seen in the world. And now he's coming to the end of the book, and he's not just giving us advice on what he's seen, but he's starting to give us commands, imperatives, things that we must do if we're going to be wise. And remember, wisdom is not just getting lots of head knowledge. Wisdom in the Bible is practicing what you know, particularly practicing the scriptures as you have taken them in, as you have studied them, and now you live them out. But also we can add to that the providence of God. So when I study the Bible and I know what it says, and I take an action step forward based on that, sometimes God puts up a roadblock. Sometimes He opens doors and closes doors. And really that's the first part of this chapter that I read to you. And we have to recognize God's providence sooner or later, or we're just going to keep hitting our head against the wall. And so Solomon has said, look, Use that wisdom gained from Scripture and God's providence and go forward in faith, fearing the Lord. And we really see that here in chapter 11. We'll see it even more in chapter 12. By the time he gets to the end of the book, he's being very straight, very to the point. Here's what you need to know to live a wise and godly life. Well, the first uh, thing that I want you to see, there's, there's two commands here. Two commands to practice wisdom in all of life. Whether you're young, whether you're old, all of life, he's going to include both, spec- both ends of the spectrum here. There's two commands that he gives us. Number one, move forward in faith. Even when there are risks, move forward in faith. This is a key theme in the Bible. But we tend to overlook it in modern Christianity. We tend to think the Christian life is more about just sitting back and seeing what will happen. And then when we get all the information we need, we'll go ahead and move forward. Well, verses 1 through 6 teach us that we need to move forward in faith, even when there are risks. Obviously, there's going to be risk in life. Look at verse 1. Cast your bread on the surface of the waters, for you will find it after many days. Now, if you do any kind of reading on this verse, or maybe you've seen it cited elsewhere, or maybe you look up commentaries or study Bibles, you're going to find two different views on this passage. The older view is that this is about giving. The more you give, the more it will come back to you. And not in a prosperity gospel kind of way, but just be generous, and God will be generous to you. And there are verses in the Bible that speak like that. The other view of this verse and what it means is that it's an investing Verse. It's one about financial investing. Invest wisely, given that there's risk in the world. And while many good and godly men take the position of charity, generosity, I take the position that it is indeed a financial investment that he's talking about here in verses 1 and 2. So let's do a quick Bible study. Go through the reasons why I believe that. This is practicing good, faithful hermeneutics, trying to figure out What does the verse mean? So Solomon, in his wise way, gives us some of these verses. We've got to dig in. We've got to study. That's what wisdom literature is like all throughout the Bible, by the way. That's why it's hard for us sometimes. That's why people stay away from Ecclesiastes. 
that you've got to do some difficult study. Well, let me tell you why I think it's about financial or business investing. The context is telling us that's what it's about. The next uh, set of things he's going to talk to us about here in verses 1 through 6 is farming. So farming is a business. He's going to talk about how you go about farming as a farmer so that you can have success. So the context points more towards business, investing. Also, this first word, the very first word in verse 1 says calf. And that's really not the best translation. It's more like send or let things go. Let them loose. Let them go. Which is a term that fits well with a commercial context where ships are sent out to sea for many years. Let your ships go out to their trading posts. Let them go from the port, from the dock. And there's a bit of risk that they will return. But it's wise to go ahead and let them go. This fits well also with the historical. So we looked at just the context of this passage. The word meaning of cast is more of let loose. But there's also a historical context here. Go with me to 1 Kings. Go back in your Bible to 1 Kings chapter 9. And we're going to just consider here what it is that Solomon was doing to gain a lot of the wealth that he had. 1 Kings chapter 9 tells us how wealthy Solomon was. And how he sent ships out. First uh, Kings nine twenty six. And let's just read here what it says about Solomon and his sh- uh, trading shipping empire. King Solomon also built a fleet of ships. This is uncommon for Israel, even though the ocean was along uh, one side of their country. Uh, they did not work on extensive trade throughout the Mediterranean. But when Solomon took his kingship, he built a port far to the south so they could leave and go east, even further east towards India, Africa, things like that. And he says he built a fleet of ships, which is near Eloth on the shore of the Red Sea in the land of Edom. And Hiram sent his servants with the fleet, sailors who knew the sea, along with the servants of Solomon. So this is the ruler of the Phoenician city Tyre. And Hiram knew about sailing. Tyre was a great city known for its trading, known for its ships. And Hiram's a good friend here of Solomon, so he sends some wood and his sailors to sail these ships. They went to Ophir. We don't know exactly where that is. could be India. And took 420 talents of gold from there and brought it to King Solomon. Where did he get all this gold? Well, a lot of it was just from business activity, from trading. Also skip over to chapter 10 of 1 Kings. And verse 22, For the king had at sea the ships of Tarshish with the ships of Hiram. So we looked at the ships of Hiram. Those are going east probably towards India, maybe along the coast of Africa. But Tarshish is west. Tarshish is out near Spain. So he's got ships going as far as mankind went in those days to trade. Once every three years, the ships of Tarshish came bringing gold and silver Ivory and apes and peacocks. Probably got those animals along the North African coast. So he's very wealthy. And the reason is, one of the reasons is because he's sending out these ships to many places. Not just trading with his neighbors nearby, but all over the ancient world. A similar idea is also found, if we want to use a cross-reference here, on the bread and the waters in Proverbs 31, verse 14. 
It's speaking of a godly wife. It's speaking of all her activities, even her business activities. Because she helped her husband conduct business activities. When he went to the town and when he judged as an elder of the city, she ran the home business. And she even had some of her own home businesses that she did. And it said she is like merchant ships. She brings her food from afar. So why do I tell you all of this? Why do I, I tell you the background, the context? Some of us really like that. Others, you're probably wondering, what's, what's this all about? Well, we need to understand what he's telling us to do because it's a command here. It's an imperative. Cast, let loose, send them out. So what is it he's saying? He's saying, look, the bread is exporting goods overseas. Grain which is used to make bread. The surface of the water taken literally, that's the seas, a place where trading between countries has happened for millennia. And he's saying, even though it's somewhat risky to do this, do it anyway. Send out your goods to other places, and when they come back, there's going to be a return on profit. Act wisely. First of all, just in the business realm, he's saying. The NET translation gets it, I think, better. Send your grain overseas, for after many days you will get a return. Okay, Solomon, why is this important? What if we're not in grain trading? What if we don't go purchase food for large grocery stores? How do we deal with this? Well, he's saying, look, wisdom means investing in things wisely. Whether it's your business, whether it's your career, and you're working for someone else. Whether it's buying a home, running a home, buying groceries. Invest in things wisely, whether it's your education, your children's education. Invest wisely. Think about your options and make sure, he's going to say in the next verse, that you have a backup plan. Make sure you diversify because we're commanded to work diligently for God's glory in this life. We've got to trust in Him. And even though there's risk that those ships might not come back, we still do it. We still get up every day and go to work or get up every day and take care of the kids or get up every day and do the things we are supposed to do each day. It's an imperative here. It's not an option. He's not saying, if you feel like it, go ahead and send out all your many ships with bread upon the surface of the waters. No, you must do it. It's part of what it means to be wise, living a godly life. It doesn't mean you have to go into business for yourself necessarily or or take a job where you're diversifying rental properties or diversifying investments in the stock market. But just be wise with your money, with your time, with the gifts that God has given you, whatever that resource might be. Verse 2 goes on, Divide your portion to seven, even to eight, for you do not know what misfortune may occur on the earth. Look, things are going to happen. Storms are going to come. Literal storms and figurative storms. You need to diversify your investments. And whenever the Bible uses seven or eight, or sometimes it'll say one, no two, things like that, it just means a vast, various number of things that you should do. Don't put all your eggs in one basket is what he's saying. That's the modern proverb. Don't put all your eggs in one basket. Unless God tells you to, right? You can't use this verse to say, well, I got to go marry seven or eight wives, right? Well, I got to go have seven or eight homes because it says diversify. No, there are times when God's word is very clear on this and he says, 
look, one wife, one God, one Bible. But there are other times when it's wise to have various different things. And the point is that life and business is not just a roll of the dice. That's not what he's saying. But we don't know what's coming. God knows, but we don't know what's coming. So because we don't know what's coming, we need to act wisely. We don't know what the future holds. You don't know what God's plans are. And so where it's wise, you need to diversify. You need to do seven or eight, he says. Various options. Use wisdom so that you invest your time, money, and resources into things that matter, into things that last, into things that are good and glorifying to God. So what would that look like? Well, if you're in business for yourself, you want to have more than one customer, obviously. You have one customer in business, what's going to happen when that customer no longer wants to hire you? You're done. If you're investing, whether it's in real estate, whether it's in the stock market, mutual funds, retirement funds, don't put them all in one kind of investment. I mean, those are obvious direct applications here, but we can go further. Think about the church. Where has God set up wisdom in the church? Well, it's very clear that we need a plurality of elders. You don't put all your power in one man's hands. You don't put all the money in one man's hands. There's a plurality. There's wisdom in that. Even in evangelism, Jesus says many are called, few are chosen. So we need to think about that. Not that we know who the elect are, but we need to think about the doors that God is opening for evangelism. And we need to use our time wisely. Are you supposed to keep beating your head against the wall with the one person who for 40 years has refused? Or the 10 people over here who are hungry to hear the gospel? They're ready. And Jesus has a lot to say about that in the New Testament. Well, maybe your electricity goes out all the time in your neighborhood and you need a generator as a backup plan. Maybe you just need another grocery store if the power goes out there and all the food spoils. You need some diversification. And you might say, well, this sounds really worldly. I mean, this isn't the holy kind of stuff we're used to hearing in Scripture. Well, actually it is because he's saying a godly person lives wisely. You don't put all your eggs in one basket. You don't just focus and get all worked up about one thing, one brand, one place, one customer, one career path. You hold things loosely because God's going to change things. How many times have some of you men changed jobs in this church? And you didn't see that one coming. I didn't see ministry coming for years. I thought I had my plan figured out, but God had a different plan. So now he picks up on that theme of the unknown in verse 3, and he explains it. Verse 3, if the clouds are full, they pour out rain upon the earth. And whether a tree falls toward the south or toward the north, wherever the tree falls, there it lies. What is he saying there? I mean, that seems pretty obvious. Doesn't that seem obvious? Doesn't that seem obvious? You see clouds, it looks like it's going to rain, it rains. Tree falls, there it lies. Well, that's the point. Those things happen and you can't do anything about it. You look up, rain's coming. You know that every day is not going to be sunny. Every day is not going to be carefree. Rain's going to come literally. And we could even extend it and say figuratively in your life, there's going to be rainy days. Trees are going to fall down. You can't change that. doesn't matter how active you get in these environmental groups. The tree's going to fall over when it's dead or when a storm comes through. 
That's just the way it is. That's the way God has planned it. That's the way God has set it up. He's saying you don't even have control over these things. From our vantage point, here under the sun, we do not control those things, and we don't even know that they're coming. It's sort of like saying whatever will happen will happen. But not in the atheistic way, not in the pagan way. Whatever will happen will happen because God is in control, not us. We're not in control of what's happening in the future. You've probably heard the modern proverb, whichever way the cookie crumbles, however the cookie breaks up, it's really not up to us. When you break that cookie, it breaks in its own special way. The implication here is that even though we don't know, we don't control what is to come, we just need to get after it. We need to get busy living for the Lord. We need to not sit around and worry, is it going to rain today or not? Maybe then I'll do something. Which way is that tree going to fall when it falls over? I'm going to sit here and watch the tree fall over. Now, don't be paralyzed by something that's inevitable. It's going to rain. Plan for it. The tree's going to fall over. Plan for it. You can't do anything about it, but you can plan as best you can for the future. The main thing is take action steps. Get going. Now, an interesting side note on this verse. Some of you may know this. R.C. Sproul was saved when he read this verse. He says, I think I'm the only person in the history of the church to be converted by a particular verse that God used to open up my heart and my eyes to the truth of Christ. It came from the book of Ecclesiastes where the author says, in metaphorical terms, he, he says, a tree that falls in the forest and where it falls, there it stays. And God awakened my soul by considering that passage as I saw myself as a tree falling, rotting, and decaying. And that was the description of my life. That's where I was. Nobody had to tell me that I was a sinner. I knew that. I was, it was abundantly clear to me. One verse jumps out at him. And he then hears the gospel right after that. Puts his trust in Christ. The great theologian, R.C. Sproul, saved by a verse he says nobody's probably ever been saved by in the history of the church. Well, moving on here with Solomon's point, that we need to move forward in faith, even when there's risks. Verse 4. He who watches the wind will not sow, and he who looks at the clouds will not reap. Now he's moved into farming, and he's gone from sending out your ships and investing an investment parable now to really farming here. And he says, as a farmer, if you just sit around and worry about what the wind's going to do, about what the clouds are going to do, and you never actually plant seed, you won't have a crop. If you just sit around and try to guesstimate what's going to happen today, tomorrow, next month, and you don't take action, that's not living for the Lord. That's not doing something godly. This is the person who's overly cautious about everything in life. So he or she stays in this indecisive zone. She can't make up my mind. I don't know what to do. And that's fine on some things, you know, if you're just deciding what Christmas present you're going to buy your children. You can take some time to do that. Some things like that aren't huge life-changing moments. But some are. And some people just freeze up. And some people are overly cautious. They're paralyzed by what might happen. And there's many groups that he's already mentioned that are similar to that. He said there's those who are lazy. There's those who are workaholics. And now he's saying there's those who are overly cautious. 
Something might go wrong, so I better not start this path. Even though God has said it's, it's a valuable thing to do, it's not commanded against in Scripture, but something might go wrong. A new job, a new business, buying a new home, getting married, having children. There's a lot of young people today who don't want to get married because the world's in too much chaos. There's always chaos in the world. There's always sin in the world. Some unbelievers especially are saying they don't want to have children, even if they do get married. Because it's such a wicked, evil world. Well, there's been sin since Adam and Eve fell. That doesn't change the fact that we're to have children. So it says, don't be paralyzed by what might happen. Gain wisdom. Be discerning. Make a godly decision. Don't just sit around talking about what might happen Worrying about all the things that might come up in the future. Solomon is saying here, do something. Get out and sow the seed if you're a farmer. Stop watching the wind and the skies. Just get to work. Verse 5. He shows us another way that people can be paralyzed from taking action. So we need to look at the first part of verse 5. Because again, we're running up upon an interpretive issue here. If you have the ESV, it's going to read a little bit different. The NASB says, just as you do not know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman. The real question is this word wind. Sometimes it means spirit in the Bible, the Hebrew word ruach, and sometimes it means wind. So how do you determine? Well, you try to look at the verse and see which one would fit better. In this case, the ESV has spirit instead of wind. And it says that the Spirit is going into the bones of a person in the womb. So just one thing is happening here instead of the two things, the wind and the bones being formed. The ESV says it's really just one thing. It's not the wind, but the Spirit. But most often Solomon uses ruach for wind. He's talked a lot about chasing the wind. It's a word that he uses often to say, quit wasting your time running after the wind, trying to grasp it. That's a waste of time. You can't control the wind. I think it's best to take this like the NASB has here, that it is the wind. It's that theme of chasing the wind. You don't know where the wind is going. You don't know where it's come from, and you don't know where it's going. As humans, basically, we're ignorant. We think we have all these great weather projections and weather patterns. What's going to happen with the weather here in 30 days? How about a year? We don't really even know today. I mean, we can look at what it says on our apps or on the news. We can take our best guesstimate, but sometimes they're wrong and we get mad at them because we made these plans and the weather changes last minute. We really don't know. And we don't know how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman. Then you say, well, we have ultrasounds. We have all this science, technology. Yeah, but that's the what. That's what's happening. But why does it do that? Why do cells divide? And how do they even know to do that? Only God knows. We are ignorant. We're ignorant of what's to come. By the way, Jesus probably looked at this verse when he said in John 3, 8, the wind blows where it wishes and you hear the sound of it, but you do not know where it comes from or where it is going. So is everyone who's born of the Spirit. He's talking to Nicodemus in John 3 about the Holy Spirit there making people born again. 
And Nicodemus would have known. He would have known Ecclesiastes. You don't know where the Spirit's going. You don't know where the wind is going. Neither one you can control. You can't control the wind. You can't control the Holy Spirit. So what do we do? Well, it says here, you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. God knows all things. God knows where the wind is going. God knows how and why and everything there is about forming the child in the pregnant woman's womb. So what should we do? God is the only one who knows. Therefore, by implication, we should trust in Him. If He's the only one who knows all things, we should trust in Him. Move forward in faith. I don't know, Pastor. I mean, there's a lot of stuff going on in the world. There's a lot of bad things happening. We might have one of those freezes that happens every hundred years. Wipes out everything. Have to go rush and get toilet paper for the next, you know, COVID crisis that's coming up. God knows all things. We trust in Him. It's okay to get a little toilet paper, but don't run to the store and get it all. It's ridiculous. Verse 6, he continues. He's summing it all up here, really. Sow your seed in the morning, and do not be idle in the evening. For you do not know whether morning or evening sowing will succeed, whether both of them alike will be good. Look, don't just go out and throw a little seed in the morning when it's nice and cool and say, I'm done for the day. I'm going to go home. I'm going to rest. God will, God will grow that seed I threw out this morning. Now the farmer goes out all day. He's there working late. He's throwing out the seed. He's plowing his fields. He's got something to do all year long. Work hard. Instead of being paralyzed by these limits of human knowledge, get busy. Work. Live. Enjoy life. Whatever you're doing, do it for the glory of God. Take a nap like Jesus did for the glory of God. Don't be indecisive. Pray about it? Yes. Read Scripture? See if it has anything to say about it? Yes. But make a decision. That's what wisdom is about. Don't make a quick decision, especially in major areas of your life. But eventually a decision will have to be made. And not making a decision is actually a decision. You've just decided not to deal with it. You just said, you know, I don't want to deal with it. It's too much for me. Well, that's a decision. Don't be idle, he says. Don't work just a little bit and make excuses. Paul uses the same kind of language, doesn't he? When he speaks about work in ministry. 1 Corinthians 3.6 I planted, he's saying I threw the seed out, I preached the gospel. Apollos watered, but... God was causing the growth. So then neither the one who plants nor the one who waters is anything but God who causes growth. Farming is very humbling because you don't know what's going to happen. You just go plant the seed and trust that the rain will come, that God will grow it. And that's what we're to do in life. Walt Kaiser, he sums up what this verse is really getting at, I think, well. He says, let the result, being success or failure, Rest in the hand of God. But do not just sit there waiting for secure guarantees for life. Do something now right where you are. Don't just sit back and say, I'm not going to do anything, God. I'm paralyzed by fear, by what might come. Jesus told a parable about this. And let's go look at that. Matthew 25. It has a lot of similarities to what we just read in Ecclesiastes. Matthew 25, starting in verse 14. The parable of the talents. The parable of the talents. So 
Come to find out, the more we study Ecclesiastes, the more we learn from it, the more we realize that these themes are picked up in the New Testament by Jesus, by the apostles. Some people say, you know this guy who wrote Ecclesiastes? He was crazy. We don't even know how it got into the Bible. It's all negative. It's all about foolishness and meaningless and vanity and futility. And especially liberal scholars, they eat that up. Liberal Bible scholars. But even some conservatives. But yet, it is there for our good. It is there for our help. It's not about meaninglessness. It's not about futility. It's about learning lessons in life. And that's what Jesus teaches here to his disciples. Matthew 25, verse 14. For it is just like a man about to go on a journey, who called his own slaves and entrusted his possessions to them. To one he gave five talents, to another two, and to another one, each according to his own ability. And he went on his journey. So he gave abilities to people, is the idea here. Giftings, resources. Immediately, the one who had received the five talents went and traded with them and gained five more talents. He invested and made a profit. In the same manner, the one who had received the two talents gained two more. Not bad. He doubled his original investment. But he who received the one talent went away and dug a hole in the ground and hid his master's money. Now, sometimes we read that and we think, well, that sounds pretty wise, right? We don't want to risk the Lord's money. We don't want to risk the king's gold. Just go put it in the bank and let it sit there till he comes back. Verse 19. After a long time, the master of those slaves came and settled accounts with them. The one who had received the five talents came up and brought five more talents, saying, Master, you entrusted five talents to me. See, I have gained five more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You are faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. You did well with what I gave you, the Lord is saying. And come into the kingdom. I will give you more responsibility. I will give you many blessings. Also, the one who had received the two talents came up and said, Master, you entrusted two talents to me. See, I've gained two more talents. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful slave. You were faithful with a few things. I will put you in charge of many things. Enter into the joy of your master. So whether God gives you a lot to work with or a little, it's how you use it. It's how you use it. You may not be the wealthiest person. There might be somebody here that's wealthier than you. Somebody here that's more naturally gifted. Somebody that you think is really using their spiritual gifts well. But Jesus says, even if you have a little amount and use it wisely, you will be rewarded. But the one slave, verse 24, the one also who had received the one talent came up and said, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow, gathering where you scattered no seed. And I was afraid and went away and hid your talent in the ground. See, you have what is yours. He's patting himself on the back. I did such a great job. I put it in the ground. Now I can give it back to you. I didn't lose it. Aren't you happy? But his master answered and said to him, You wicked, lazy slave. You knew that I reap where I did not sow and gather where I scattered no seed. Just speaking in general here, he's not talking necessarily about himself. Jesus is saying that often masters can be hard on their slaves and they expect the slaves to do the work while they sit around. 
Then you ought to have put my money in the bank. On my arrival, I would have received my money back with interest. Back then, banks paid much more interest than they do now for a savings account. We might say here, you could have invested it in the stock market, mutual fund, real estate, whatever. The guy didn't invest it, though, at all. He put it in the ground. And what does Jesus say? Therefore, take away the talent from him and give it to the one who has the ten talents. For everyone who has, more shall be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who does not have, the one who didn't use what God had given him, even what he does have shall be taken away. Throw out the worthless slave into the outer darkness and the place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. That's hell. That's hell. All of these slaves said that they were faithful. All of these slaves came to the master and said, look what we've done for you. Two of them actually showed it by their life. The third turns out he wasn't actually a faithful slave at all. He wasn't a faithful slave. And he got thrown out into the outer darkness. Look, everything we do is full of risk. You get up in the car, you drive, you got up this morning, got in the car, drove here. There was a risk. You accept risk every day on the small stuff. Just know that you can't know the future. You're not God. We cannot know what the future will bring 100% of the time. But you know what faith is? Here's how Hebrews 11 describes faith. Faith is the assurance of things hoped for, the conviction of things not seen. Which means when you go forward in faith, you're not seeing it right now. You're not seeing what's going to happen right away. You're not looking for that immediate gratification like the world. You have to wait, but you have faith. You know, we agree with this on the small stuff. But on the larger things, we're often frozen by fear. We're unwilling to move forward in life. We're paralyzed by the unknown. Not a healthy fear. If you walk out in that interstate right now, you should have fear. That's healthy fear. There's a reality to the fact that you might die if a truck hits you. But often we're scared we have an unhealthy fear of things. Not a biblical fear. People are scared of getting married, taking a job, all the things that I've already listed. Not having children. Life's already full of risk. You take them every day. Every single day. If you've trusted in Christ, that comes with a cost, Jesus says. And he says, look, you need to weigh the cost, even to become my disciple. Because it's going to mean every day you get up and take a risk and you crucify yourself, your own flesh, your sin, over and over. You take up your cross and you follow me. And the world's going to hate you. And you've got to fight against the world, the flesh, and the devil. There's a risk to that. And Solomon's just saying basically the same thing. You're a person of God. You're a follower of God. You're God's children. There's risk, but move forward in faith. Well, sometimes people say, you know, I'm just waiting on the Lord. I'm just waiting on the Lord. And it's not used in the right way. We don't say that when we need to go get groceries. I'm just waiting on the Lord to give me a sign whether I should go get groceries, whether I should pay my electric bill. There is a biblical concept called waiting on the Lord. But you know what it means? If you look up all the references to waiting on the Lord, it actually means trusting, showing faith, hoping, confidently and patiently expecting God to act faithfully. Waiting on the Lord does not mean being inactive. 
It means being prayerful. It means having a prayerful attitude of trust, expectancy, patience, confidence, or reliance upon God. It's the exact opposite of how people misuse it. They will sometimes say they're waiting on the Lord because they don't want to make a decision. They're just being indecisive. Other times, it's used rightly. We should use it rightly. I'm praying. I'm moving forward in faith, but I am praying. We're moving forward in faith on this next building as a church, but we are praying. We are praying. We're waiting on the Lord as we take a step of faith each and every day of our life. Proverbs 69, the mind of man plans his way, but the Lord directs his steps. It's not saying never plan. You already plan, whether you admit it or not. But just realize your plan might change. You plan your path. You get up every day and go about that plan, and God might change it. And that's fine. You adjust your plan, and you follow what the Lord is doing. You don't sit around and be inactive. People want to blame God sometimes for their inactivity. It's very common among young Christian men these days in the wider Christian world to do this. Look, God's not going to send an angel to tell you what job to take. He's not going to send a booming voice out of heaven to tell you who to marry or when it's time to get married. He's not going to tell you to put out the golden fleece. The Apostle Paul did miraculous works, and he didn't even look for those things. The Apostle Paul was a miracle worker. God spoke directly to Paul. Paul had a vision of heaven. And you know what he did? He was told to take the gospel to the Gentiles. And that's what he did. Until God closed the door. And then he changed directions. Acts 16, verse 7. Paul, he had a desire here to go take the gospel to an area. And he was going to go forth with it. It was biblical. And you know what it says? Let's go there. Let's just read it. Because sometimes we get the idea that God was constantly communicating directly with the apostles. They did have that ability. God did do that often, obviously. He could do that if he wanted to anytime, but he didn't always. Acts 16, 7. Paul's not waking up every day saying, give me my agenda for the day, Lord. Paul is making plans to take the gospel out. And in Acts 16, verse 7, it says, And after they came to Mysia, they were going to go into Bithynia. And the Spirit of Jesus did not permit them. It wasn't sinful. He had the right desires. He was going to take the gospel to this region. But for whatever reason, and however it happened, the Spirit, the Holy Spirit, did not allow it. They could not go there. And passing by Mysia, they came down to Troas. And a vision appeared to Paul in the night. A man of Macedonia was standing and appealing to him and saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. So Paul did have a vision. You're not going to have a vision like that. The scriptures close, the canons close. But look at this, verse 10. When he had seen the vision, immediately we sought to go into Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. They had to think about the vision. They had to think about what it meant. It's similar to us reading scripture And then we have to ask, okay, what's our conclusion from that? God says this. God spoke to Paul. Now, what should he conclude? And there were others with him. What should they do? Well, they concluded we should go to Macedonia. That God has called us to preach the gospel to them. Because he had this dream. It wasn't even a direct God speaking directly to him. You see, the Apostle Paul had to use wisdom. The Apostle Paul had to use wisdom as he went on his missionary journey. 
Paul stepped forward in faith. He kept going until it was obvious that God was closing the door. And then he made course adjustments. And then he kept going. And he kept going. And he made course adjustments. And he kept going. He wanted to go to Spain someday. And we don't even know if he got there because his life was cut somewhat short by persecution. So that's the longest point of the two. I think that's uh, where we often really need to think about our own life here. And are we moving forward in faith according to God's word, according to God's providential history in our own lives? Number two, the second command. Rejoice in the years God has given you. Rejoice in the years God has given you. The light is pleasant. It's good for the eyes to see the sun. Sunshine is a good thing. It's pleasant. And the word sweet here for pleasant in the Hebrew is often used in the Bible to describe honey. And what he's saying here is that life is good. It's a good thing. Enjoy life in a godly way. We're not to go through life just thinking, you know, it's such a hard life. Things are so bad. The world, my life, so depressing. No, Solomon is saying, enjoy life. He's going to get more direct as we go through the passage here. Life is meant to be enjoyed to the glory of God. Like you would enjoy eating sweet honey on a good homemade biscuit. My grandma made the best biscuits. My wife and daughter make good biscuits like my grandma. We put honey on those things, and that's enjoyable. That's what he's saying here. It's pleasant. It's good to be alive. Not so we can sin, but so we can glorify God. If you're not alive on this earth, then you're not glorifying God under the sun right now. Sure, there's going to be hard times. He's already mentioned those hard times in Ecclesiastes. But our general outlook as a Christian should be positive, not negative. I'm not saying you have to be positive about where the whole world is going, but on your own Christian life, the life of a Christian, you should have a positive outlook on your life, your time in this world. Verse 8, Indeed, if a man should live for many years, let him rejoice in them all. However long God gives you, rejoice in them. Every year, every day, every breath that God gives you, thank Him for it. You're still here for a reason. You're still here to do something for the Lord. Otherwise, you wouldn't be here. There's a purpose to your life. This is the day which the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. Psalm 118, 24. And he continues, he says, Let him remember the days of darkness, for they will be many. Everything that is to come will be, and the, the Hebrew word is hevel. He's saying, look, there's suffering coming in your life. There's old age coming in your life. There's dying, the process of dying. It's not always a quick process. But all of that's in our future. And we need to think about it. We need to enjoy the life God has given us now. Because it's going to get harder near the end of life. Even that part and everything in life is Havel. It's very short. It's very quick. Young age, old age, it's very quick. Life is a vapor, so enjoy it now to the glory of God. Now, he really opens it up in verse 9. Rejoice, young man, during your childhood. During your youth is actually a better translation. I don't, I don't like childhood here. The literal is during your youth, your teenage years. So I mentioned this verse yesterday at the, uh, the youth's retreat there when I was preaching. Rejoice. Have joy. If you're a teenager, it shouldn't be, I can't wait to get out of my house so I can do all these things. Life is just horrible. i got to obey my parents and clean my room 
Someday I can just live in a pigsty. No, rejoice even in your teenage years. Let your heart be pleasant. Even in your young adult years. He says young manhood, just young adult after your teenage years. And follow the impulses of your heart and the desires of your eyes. Now the world would love that verse. The problem is they don't put it in context. Numbers 15, Moses is giving commands to Israel. And he talks about the tassels that are going to be on their clothes. And he says, you look at those tassels and you remember the commandments of the Lord. So as to do them and not follow your own heart and your own eyes, after which you played the harlot, so that you may remember to do all my commandments and be holy to your God. Solomon knows his Bible. He's not contradicting Moses. It would never have been in the Bible if he was contradicting Moses. The Hebrews would have thrown it out. That's not what he's doing here. Because look at the next verse. Yet know that God will bring you to judgment for all these things. God's going to take a review of your life. Go ahead and do what you desire to do. If you're born again, if you're regenerate, your desires ought to line up with Christ's desires, with the Bible's commands. Yeah, sometimes we, we stumble, we fall, but we get back up. The Lord's grace, He takes us. We can obey Him. But the unbeliever hears this verse and they run off and do what they want. And God says, He's going to judge. The literal is, the God will bring to you the judgment. Your life will be reviewed. So don't just run off into sin. Get all the godly joy and godly happiness you can in your younger days, he's saying. Now he'll have some things to say about older age in the next chapter. But right now he's speaking to the youth. And he's saying, look, have a good balance in your life. Don't go into sin. MacArthur Study Bible says, don't be reckless, sinful abandonment, pleasures experienced in faith and obedience. For as Solomon has said repeatedly, one can only receive true satisfaction as a gift from God. God's going to review your life. But go and enjoy life. Just do it within the boundaries that God has set. If you're a Christian, you have boundaries. The world has boundaries. They don't recognize them. We have boundaries as a Christian, and you know what they are. You have a general sense already. Study your Bible, and you'll know it even better. Verse 10. So, here's the conclusion for the young people. Remove grief and anger from your heart. Why are young people so upset? Why are you looking on the news? Who's out there rioting in the streets of the cities? It's the young people. It's the young men. They don't have a purpose in life. They're just kind of waiting around sometimes to get the text that it's time to go riot. South Africa is, is falling apart. The rioting is going on there throughout the whole country. Every country really lately has been experiencing rioting. Crime waves have hit the U.S. Crime has doubled in most cities since a year ago. Who is that? Young people. They have grief. They have anger. And he says, don't be like that. Remove it. Have the right mental outlook. And even put away pain from your body. Because it says childhood, but again, youth, your teenage years, and the prime of life, your young adulthood, are fleeting. Hevel, again, it flies by. It flies by. Remove the grief and anger from your heart, from your mind, and take care of yourself so you don't have pain in your body. Don't waste your time and your efforts, young people, on things that are taking away from your body's ability to glorify God later in life. 
Don't go out and hurt yourself. Don't go out and do silly, foolish things that keep you from using your body to glorify God later. Have wisdom. Life is a vapor. Spend your youth wisely. Don't throw away the opportunities that God has given you. Enjoy it. Enjoy it. Now, as we get more wisdom as we're older, we understand we need to enjoy what little time we have. But the young people, you know, they say youth is wasted on the young. You need to rejoice. You need to enjoy it. It's not hard to do the things that your parents tell you. It's not hard to to study. It's not hard to learn. It's not hard to be a teenager. It really gets hard when you're an adult because now it's all on you. And God gives you more responsibility when you're older. Well, we've learned how to have wisdom in all of life. We need to move forward in faith even when there's risk. And we need to rejoice in the years that God has given us. Those are wise, general principles in life. That's how we glorify God. That's how we live for Christ. It's not just something we say, but it's also something we do. It's a way we live. So let's pray for God's help now in doing that. Lord, we ask for your help today because uh, we are often wanting to run back into our fleshly desires and to the world's thinking. Sometimes we even think we're doing a good thing for you, but we're actually just doing it for ourselves. Give us wisdom, O oh Lord, wisdom. Help us, Lord, to not put all our eggs in one basket. You're the only one that we're solely focused on. And help us, Lord, to teach the youth and help the youth that are here this morning to realize that it's an opportunity God has given them now at this age to live for you. So we pray that they would do that, Lord. Give us wisdom as a church. Let us glorify your name. Amen.